So open our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 23. I've entitled this message, Dealing with Discouragement. The Bible says the greatest man who ever lived was John the Baptist. And yet, there was a time when he actually doubted. He actually sent his disciples out and um, asked Jesus, is he the one or should we be looking for somebody else? I mean, his whole purpose for being was to be pointing the finger that this is the Messiah. But he had his day of doubt in prison. And um, what Jesus, sending back the message, tell him, tell John this, that the sick are getting healed and talking about the miracles that are being done. And then he says something that only John would know. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. See, there was something that only Jesus knew about the greatest man who ever lived. Now I tell you that story because when I think of Paul being discouraged, and that's where we're going with this study this morning, remember this is the same guy who was singing um, praise songs and hymns after getting beaten up and thrown into the Philippian jail. And uh, after getting you know, getting beaten, he's just rejoicing, praising the Lord. Um, I believe this is probably the greatest uh, dissension that we're going to read in verse 10 that Paul went through. And as we look at it, um, I would like to do a little bit of background uh, from chapters 21 and 22 as we're going to see, Paul's going to be in prison from here on out. Paul is now a prisoner, and we will follow his life as a prisoner. From this point on, we find Paul giving a defense of himself and his ministry. He will appear before several rulers because the Jews are wanting to put him to death. Um, he'll be taken down to Caesarea. He will spend two full years in prison before he finally appeals and he gets to go to Rome where he will eventually will be martyred for, for the Lord. This morning, I would like to look at several realities of dealing with discouragement and the only two answers for it. But first, let's look at Acts 21-22 as a really short, quick overview leading up to Acts 23, it'll make a whole lot more sense. So go back to chapter 21. Paul is uh, being warned about going to Jerusalem in the first place by a prophet named Agabus. And that's in uh, chapter 21, go to verse 10. And it says, we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judah. And he takes Paul and he binds him hands and foot and he tells him, this is what's going to happen to you, Paul, when you go to Jerusalem. And he was actually uh, warning Paul. And we find that in verses 10 through 14. Um, And when he heard these things about what was going to happen, they pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered and says, why do you guys break my heart? Uh, for I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. And they let it, let it go at that. God bless you. Um, Paul arrives in Jerusalem. If you look at chapter 21, verses 30 and 32, um, he makes it there. And we read, and the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, and he immediately took soldiers and centurions run down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So he's, he's getting beaten up. I couldn't remember Antonio Fortress on Wednesday night for the life of me. But on the Temple Mount, there's a, a larger section that goes up. And uh, it's, it's called Antonio's Fortress. And it's there because if any you know, problems rise, any disturbances, this is a Roman province, remember, and there better be a reason if there's any trouble going on. So they go down, and they're beating Paul to death. And they break this up um, because, of, because of this uproar. Um, from 35 to 40, uh, they, the soldiers intervene, uh, and now they're taking Paul back to the Antonio Fortress. Verse 35 says that when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitudes of the people followed after him, crying away with him. And as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? Um, He replied, can you speak Greek? And they were confused. He says, well, we thought you were that, um, um, that Ephesian who came up a time back and made a ruckus and got 4,000 people involved. And he says, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus, a citizen of no means. And I implore you, please let me speak to the people. So the same people that are beating Paul up, he wants a chance to talk to him, And that's what he's asking the, the Roman guards to do. So in verse 40, it says, and when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hands to the people and there was a great silence. He spoke to them in a Hebrew language. Now let's follow this right into chapter 22. Uh, men, brethren, and fathers, hear my defense before you now. Remember, they want, they want to kill him. Um, and when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Oh, you could have heard a pin drop. Everything changed. Who is this guy? He's speaking to us in our language. And um, the rest of this chapter, all the way up to verse 21, you could hear a pin drop, because basically he is giving his personal testimony. And he talks about that he was the one who was the most radical for going after these Christians. Ask the high priest. He gave me permission. He gave me letters. I was on my way to Damascus. I was going to catch him and bring him back to Jerusalem and have him taken care of. And, but before I could get there, the Lord spoke to him, 
And um, if you tie this into the other, his personal testimony, the Lord said to him, uh, or Paul said to the Lord, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. It's hard to kick against the cactus, Paul. It's hard to fight against me. So everybody's listening. I mean, you can hear a pin drop. He's saying, look, I'm, I'm more radical than any of you guys, but this is what happened. And he has their undivided attention during this whole thing until, okay? So if you look uh, as he's giving his testimony, uh, we get to verse 21, and in his testimony he said, then he said to them, depart for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. End of being polite, end of listening. Gentiles are not God's people. Um, It's for the Jews and the Jews only. So when they heard that um, the Lord was sending him to the Gentiles, notice what verse 22 says. They listened to him until this word. Uh, And they raised their voice and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he's not fit to live. So he had their attention for a while, but then he brought up the Gentiles, and now they're back in the mode of wanting to kill Paul. So Paul now is, um, let's go to verse 30 here, 23. Let's, that'll bring us to 25 through 30, yeah. Um, they bound him, with uh, thongs, and Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? All right, what happened here is, again, there's protocol. You just don't, uh, they didn't know he was a Roman, and they had uh, scourged him, with, and he says, is it lawful for you guys to do that, being a Roman? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told his commander, saying, take care, this guy's a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. And the commander answered and said, well, with a lot of money, I bought my freedom and my citizenship. And Paul says, yeah, but I was born free. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him And the commander was also afraid for he had found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. You don't go bounding. There's protocol in being in the Roman legion, especially if you're a Roman. And they had already bound him. So verse 30, the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bounds. And the commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear before Paul down and set him before him. He wants to get to the bottom of it. But they're going to come to the next day. That brings us to chapter 23. And um, as we look at the first five verses here, we're now at our text as we make our way through God's word. Then Paul, looking earnestly, at the council, said, Ben and brethren, I have lived in good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded 
those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, (laughs) for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Um, One of the reasons is so important, I'm going to have you turn with me so that you have an understanding what Paul is saying here. So whenever I have the opportunity to tie in the Old Testament with the New, um, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. And we'll explain through the law why Paul said what he did. What what happened to him is he was struck. And um, uh, he goes back to and he says, God's going to strike you because you're doing something that's contrary to the law. Well, what does the law have to say about it? In Deuteronomy 25, verse 1, it says, If there is a dispute between men, and they come to court, that the judge may judge them, and they justify the righteous, and then they'll condemn the wicked. Then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence, according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Forty blows may be given to him, no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. What Paul, he got smacked. And he's saying, you guys are doing something that's contrary to the law. You haven't, um, what am I being uh, condemned for here? What am I being accused of? This has got to go before the law before you can do what you just did. And the other point that I want to bring out here is, remember when they gave the lashes to Jesus? It always says 40 minus 1, right? And this is where this comes from. And the reason he got 39 lashes instead of the 40 is just in case, as they're counting, right here it says make sure you only do 40, um, if they would have, if they weren't counting, maybe they hit them 41 times. Well, that's breaking the law, and they took that that seriously. So whenever you read uh, 40 lashes minus one, here's the reason why. And what Paul is doing as he's defending himself says, "You have no no grounds here to be doing this at all." Their comeback to that is in verse four and five, and those who stood by said. Do you revile the high priest? Then Paul said, Well, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written. Again, I want to point out Bible prophecy. It is written that you should not speak evil of the ruler of your people. I won't have you turn to this one, but I want to make note where this comes from. If you're taking notes, I'm quoting Leviticus. Um... In Leviticus chapter 5. And Paul is saying, I didn't know he was a high priest. Basically, he's putting his hands up and says, I didn't know that. And the reason he does that, it says in Leviticus 5, 15, if a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally in regard to the holy thing of the Lord, Then he shall bring him to the Lord as his trespass offering, a ram without blemish from the flock, 
with your evaluation of shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary as a trespass offering. Verse 18, and he shall bring to the high priest a ram without blemish from the flock with your valuation as a trespass offering and so the priest shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance. See, this is what Paul is saying. He's like, I didn't, I didn't know. I, I'm, if, if I would have known that, I wouldn't have done it. So in the law, they actually have provision saying here what to do if somebody does something and breaking the law, but he does this, he's ignorant of it, in which he erred and he didn't know it. And it shall be forgiven him. So verse five here, um, Paul said, well, I didn't know, brethren, that he was a high priest. Uh, And then he quotes Leviticus uh, five, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Um, Let's pick it up in verse six or nine. And it's sort of a change of thought here because uh, Paul's standing before the Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And in verse six, it says, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, he says, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead. That's what I'm being judged for. And when they had said this, there was dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Because the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, or angels, or spirits, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes were of the Pharisees' party, arose and protested, saying, we find no evil in this man. If a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. We're getting more of Paul's background in these verses. His father had also been a Pharisee, probably a wealthy man, influential man. And Paul uses the discord between the scribes and the Pharisees to further his own defense. The issue here is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is simply that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead and had this hope while the Sadducees did not. So Paul turns the trial into a theological argument between the fundamentalists and the liberals. And that is easy to do. There never has been a time when you couldn't get these two groups at each other's throat And that's what Paul is doing here. Paul's being very sly. And he knew exactly how to get the attention and get these two guys going at each other instead of him. I want to point out in verse 10, it says, and when there arose a great dissension. Um, This is, I believe, at this point, Um, the only time a great dissension, of course, Luke, we know, is the one who's writing this, um, where it says it's a great dissension, knowing how he uh, uses understatements, 
Um, this is probably the worst dissension recorded in the book of Acts concerning any group. Paul's life is in so, so much danger, again, the Roman captain reaches in and saves him from the angry Sanhedrin. So now, verse 10, when there arose a great dissension, uh, the commander fearing that Paul might be pulled to pieces. This is literally, they're gonna kill him. Uh, but then commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force uh, from them and bring him back to the barracks. Which brings us to the main verse of our study this morning. And that is in verse 11. It says that the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul. Now my question for you this morning in verse 10 is the Lord appears to him and he says, Paul, be of good courage. My question is, why would he say that to Paul? And my answer to that is, I believe fully that Paul is discouraged here. And otherwise, why would the Lord appear to him and encourage him and say, Paul, be of good cheer? The reason I entitled this this morning um, dealing with discouragement is I believe this was one of the times that Paul needed to be encouraged. All right, let's make it applicable for the times that we live today, okay? Dealing with discouragement. Today, because of the state of the world and in many non-believers especially. I don't know how they're dealing with what's going on right now, but believers too. And one of the reasons um, I want to go through this is so that you know, we talked about this in men's prayer, that if it can happen to Paul and he gets discouraged, how much more you and I? There are days when you are going to be discouraged with all that's going on. Some of you have lost your jobs. Some of you have... um, um, are just dis- not encouraged, you're discouraged. And as a result, I believe that as we face the times in which we're living, uh, one of the brothers over here just, just told me that they threw that pa- pastor up in Canada in prison. And the other thing that's going on right now in North Carolina is um, they hacked into the pipeline gas mains for all the south and right now the gas is turned off in North Carolina and they're doing it so it won't spread nationwide my friends we're in an all out war right now and uh, the thing that we have going for us is we know where it's all going to end up and we're just watching it unfold so even though we are discouraged, at least we know that God has a purpose and a plan and he's sovereign. We know there's gonna be a one world government. This Reset 21 is coming, that's what all this is about. And the downfall of the dollar of our economy, I am not optimistic. I think we're past the point of no return. And I see um, the Bible talks about not being able to buy or sell, well, that's happening already in some places. Uh, you go to Lambeau Field, you can't use money. You gotta, you gotta use a card. 
And so we're seeing these things, and again, I've quoted this often, when we see these things begin to happen, what are we supposed to do? Look up. And don't stop fellowshipping and do it all the more. So we have hope, even when we're discouraged. So at least we know what's going on. Is everybody with me? And, and we know where it's headed. I think the next event that's gonna happen is the rapture of the church. Because things are unfolding so quickly that, um, uh, and we know that it's gonna lead to a one world religion and a one world government. The Bible clearly predicts it, but we could actually watch it and see it unfolding. But as believers, what does the scripture tell us about being discouraged? I believe there's only two answers to get out of being discouraged, dealing with discouragement. And I want to point out, it is not Norman Vincent Peale's book, The Power in Positive Thinking. Okay? Some of you younger people here don't remember it, but... (laughs) You're not going to think yourself out of this one. And, but, what it, but it is, and some of you might be thinking, well, if the Lord appeared to me when I'm going through my hard day and I'm having a hard day, if the Lord would do that for me, I'd get over my discouragement really quickly. And I could stand before you and tell, me, tell you the Lord's never appeared to me. And he's maybe never appeared to you And we might be thinking, well, he spoke directly to Paul. And if you have Jesus appear and he's saying, don't um, be of of good cheer, Paul, for you have to testify for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. I'm not done with you. So um, he encouraged him through speaking directly to him. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. And for those of us that thinking, well, if I had an experience like that, I wouldn't be discouraged. I mean, Jesus directly speaking to him. Well, yes, he does. Hebrews 1 tells us God at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. That's how God communicated to the people, through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, who he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Is God speaking still today? Yeah. How is is he speaking today? Through his son. In other words, through the word of God. And that's where we get our encouragement from. John chapter one says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that is made. In him is life, the life and the light of men. So God does speak to us if we're in this book. And it's um, the first step of getting out of being discouraged. Uh, it also says in James 1.22, and in John, first of all, John 5, Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Well, on your worst day, you can look up and go, my name's written in a book. 
God's still on the throne, and I have everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but you pass from death into life. But it's not, you can be a hearer, but that's one, one issue. But James goes on to say, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. We can go to church, we can read the Bible, we can hear it, but if you don't apply it, it doesn't work. You actually have to be a doer of the word. And um, what I'd like to do for the remainder of the study is actually show you these two ways of dealing with discouragement, and I would like to use the Old Testament to bring about um, exactly how this is accomplished. So with that, let's turn to the book of Nehemiah. Oh my goodness, my Bible just opened to my page. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter one, I'll read the first three verses. People have been in Babylon for 70 years. It was completely destroyed, Jerusalem. About 50,000 of them come back the first time. And in verse one, it says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, came to pass in the month of Sheslev in the 12th year. It was in Shushan, the citadel, that Han and I, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress. And I want to, you can underline that. They're there, and they're in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So he gets this report that they're there, but everybody's discouraged. Nobody's working. And they're not doing anything because they're, as it says here, we're in great distress. And the rest of this chapter is Nehemiah getting this report, but he's still got a job. So in chapter two, he's, his job was uh, the king cupsbearer. And this is what he did on a daily basis. And he always came in, he was happy, he was glad, but not to stay. He had just gotten this word that nobody's doing anything in Jerusalem. They're all discouraged, doing nothing. And um, the king picks up on his body language, says, what's up, Nehemiah? This isn't you. You're the happy-go-lucky guy, and I don't see that today. And he said, he came out and spilled his guts, and, and he told them, he said, well, I just got news. The people are back, some of them, but they're discouraged, and nothing's getting done. And what he's, the king comes right out and asks him, okay, what do you want? He said, I want you to give me permission to go to Jerusalem. I want money. I want authority. Anybody that would try to stop me on the way, I want papers so that nobody will stop me from getting to where I want to go. He says, you got it. When are you going to return? And so it brings us to, um, he finally gets there, and the first thing he does is he, he goes around the, the city walls, 
takes a look for himself. And sure enough, everything's in shambles. And everybody's discouraged. And so what does he do? In 17 and 18, I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and the gates are burned with fire? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Well, what's going on here? Same thing that Jesus did to Paul. There's work to be done, Paul. And um, I want you to be of good courage. This is a word or a short Bible study from Nehemiah to the people. And then he says, I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's word that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise and build. Then they set their hand to do this good work. Well, that's quite an attitude change. What did verse three say? They were in great distress doing nothing. Well, what changed it around? A short little word of encouragement, just like Jesus gave to Paul. Be of good cheer, Paul. But Paul's discouraged. What turned this whole complete mindset of thinking? A simple word of encouragement. In other words, a short Bible study. Let's take it a step farther. And um, as Nehemiah gives this study, let's see the results of it in um, chapter three we just read. I'd like you to go to chapter four of Nehemiah and we will look at verses four through six. The first way to deal with discouragement is being in the word of God. I want to take you to the second one here and that is prayer. The word of God. And now we read in verse four of chapter four, hear, O our God. So he's in the mode of now praying. For we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them a plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out before you. He's praying. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So what's the result of the prayer? So we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Whoa. From (laughs) discouragement in verse three of chapter one, now the people have a mind to work where they were in complete discouragement. What was the factor that changed that? Prayer. Here, O Lord. And um, acknowledging the Lord, and it changed their attitude again. Well, What was the result of that prayer? Go to chapter six, and I'll just read this one verse. So from the time that they prayed, we read in verse 15 of chapter six, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elu in 52 days. We're talking a couple months. The whole wall around Jerusalem. Uh, And for they perceived that this work was done by God. So prayer and the word of God is what I believe um, is the best way to deal with um, being discouraged. 
But another Old Testament picture um, that I want to point out here is in Exodus chapter 16. So would you please turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 16. I'm going to do an overview here of this chapter. They are coming out and uh, they're out of Egypt now. They're starting their their journey. There were over two million people that are going to be in the wilderness for the next 40 years. Question, how do you feed over two million people every day and how do you give them water every day? And this has to go on for 40 years. So the Lord's answer to it is he's going to provide for them bread from heaven. And um, he gives instruction. He tells them every morning when you guys wake up, I want you to go outside and you're going you're gonna to find this, they eventually call it manna, and it'll be there for you every day. And it will sustain you every day. But here's the deal. You got to do it daily. You can't let it, you can't say, well, I'd like to sleep in the next day so I'll get twice as much today. He says, if that's your mindset, you're going to find out, and some people did find out, that it bred worms. It stayed fresh for a day. And so they, this is something that they did. And um, if you like to eat a lot, then you could collect a lot. If you like to eat a little, then you could eat a little. And this, this was done. Uh, verse uh, 31 tells us that the house of Israel called it manna. And it was like white cordon seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. And um, the children of Israel, verse 35, ate manna for 40 years until they came into an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came into the border of Cana. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. So for... Forty years they ate manna, and they drank water. Now, lest you think I'm spiritualizing the scriptures here, I want to get a little little sidetracked. Uh, if you're taking notes, it's First Corinthians chapter ten, verse four, and um, the way the Lord provided water for forty years is um, Moses was told to strike the rock the first time. But after that, I only speak to the rock. And that's how the whole Bible study within itself. But if you're taking notes, it's 1 Corinthians 10, 4 says, that rock was Christ. So we have New Testament that telling us that the provision for the water, it says that followed them wherever they went. So when they needed water, Moses was to speak to the rock. And two million people were cared for for 40 years. Well, it was the same with the manna. I believe Jesus is a type of the manna. Um, Matthew 4, he says, Jesus says, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Don't worry, I'm going somewhere with this. If you would turn with me to no, I'm going to just quote it because I'm going to keep you in the Old Testament. 
John 6, verse 31 says about this manna, he's identifying himself to the manna in the same way that the rock identified him with the, with the water. So I'm quoting John 6, verse 31 through 35. Jesus said, our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then he said to them, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Here's one of them. I am. I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So how do we eat? Um, to, To keep ourselves from being discouraged. We got an old saying at, at Calvary Chapel, um, goes way back to the <laughs> Jesus movement days. Uh, we said, Calvary Chapel, where the sheep like to eat. And the whole idea is we're not having food here, but we are. And um, it satisfies the soul. How many times have you had a tough day on a Wednesday night and uh, you're carrying the troubles of the world on your back and you walk in here and all of a sudden you're singing songs and maybe they're saying, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this world will go strangely dim. There's a, a change that happens. Well, how does it happen? By sitting down and listening to a Bible study. By sitting down and worshiping the Lord. And the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. So, eating of the Lord, he says, it's just a picture, guys. This whole thing with the manna, the 40 years, is all about eating me. Or man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from me. And what does that do? Well, it satisfies. We sing that song, you satisfy my soul. And nothing else can do it. I believe that prayer and the word of God are the only things that can alleviate discouragement and it happens but you have to be doers of it and not just hearers well here's the deal what's happening in the times that we're living right now and I need to have you turn to the book of Numbers chapter 11 and my Bible just opened there Numbers 11 and I want to look at verses 4 through 6 they were eating manna we read every day for 40 years. Uh, verse 4 says, Now the mixed multitudes who were among them yield to intense cravings, so the children of Israel also went again and said, Who's going to give us meat to eat? Oh man, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt, those cucumbers and those melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now all we have is this dried up, there's nothing except this manna before our eyes. And now the manna was like cord and seed and the people went out and gathered it. And they cooked it and they baked it and they tried everything they could, but it was still manna. 
And the idea here is, can't we have something else? Man, back in Egypt, things were spicy. And this is not. Can't we spice things up a little bit? And, um, of course, they've tried everything. Man of this, man in the morning, man in the evening, and man at supper time, you know. Man, I'm sick of manna. And I would love one of those onions to put on it just to spice it up just a little bit. So in other words, that was their attitude, and they were murmuring and complaining. We want something other than manna. Okay. Um, The children of Israel is like a lot of the church today. The recent Gallup poll says less than 50% of the population goes to, does not go to church any longer. Uh, When Judy and I were coming to church this last Sunday, kids are playing ball. We never played ball growing up on on Sunday morning. And uh, because protocol, we just went to church, whether we knew the Lord or not. Stores were closed. And um, that's not the way it is today. And it's getting more and more and more like that. And they're drifting away not only from not going to church, but even the churches are drifting away from the solid teaching of the word of God. And just like the children of Israel saying, manna again, that's another way of saying, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 22, you're familiar with. It's like saying to a lot of churches today, what do you mean all you do at Calvary Chapel is have Bible studies? Don't you do anything else behind Bible studies? And um, a lot of the church is saying, the Bible again? Can't we spice it up a little bit besides something besides a Bible study? Um, maybe add some programs. How about a 12-step program? Um, no, I would recommend a four-step program. The four-step program is, is the foundation of the early church. It's Acts 2, verse 42. Rob alluded to it earlier. And they continued steadfastly the apostles' doctrine. You know what that is? Bible study. And in fellowship, well, we'll be eating cake afterwards in the back and fellowshipping, in breaking of bread and in prayer. We have a four-step program. We don't have a 12-step program. And I don't believe we should add to or take away any of what's given here. This is the foundation of the church. And um, it is, I truly believe, it's what will bring a person in dealing with discouragement. It's gotten so bad in some churches that are gravitating to new ways of doing things, whether it's um, Willow Creek. How many of you are familiar with the terminology a sensationalist? Raise your hand if you've heard the term. Churches that are, are um, the, the, the whole idea of sensation is hyping you up. And I thought, well, how can I dramatize that? I mean, do I start jumping up and down on a stage here? Well, that's just not me. So what I thought I would do is I'm going to show you a 40-second um, video clip 
of Bethel Church in Reddings, California of a typical Sunday morning worship service and talking about spicing things up. So I'm going to play that at this time. It's pretty wild. Hey guys, your friend Spencer here. Bethel Church in Redding, California has, man, through the years, they have told on themselves over and over and over again, and let this be the final nail in the coffin, and let this be the final proof that you need that this is not Christianity, this is spiritism, this is generic divination happening, and they just happen to use the name Jesus as the deity that they're talking about. That's... um just a short clip, and one of the speakers here last week was uh, referring to gold dust coming down. I don't know how many of you picked up on what what he was talking about, but this is something that they say happens at Bethel Church, and uh, then they have what they call the glory cloud, and it's supposed to be representative of the glory of God coming in. Well, there's one or two things going on here. Um... Either they're making this stuff up or it's demonic and there's no in-between. But it, it is what uh, talking about spicing something up, this will not deliver you from discouragement. It will hype you up, but that's all it's going to do. I'm quoting from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 that says, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, Some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So they're either making this stuff up or it's demonic. And when I see some of the radical shaking that's that's going on there, it tends me to believe it's more demonic. But a lot of people are trying to duplicate that getting farther and farther away from the Acts 2 model of Bible study. Bible study, Bible study, Bible study. Um, No, it's 12-step programs, one-step program. Take your Bible and um, do it 12 times, you know, (laughs) over and over and over. So, you know, I think of uh, Dave Hawking at this time. We've got to continue to pray for Dave um, he almost always says it when he's here. And he goes, he goes something like this. The Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. <laughs> and then he says what? Amen. And I say that's not a very good Dave Hawking amen. So give, give me a better one. All right, that's better. Well, can't we spice it up just a little bit? Well, I can do this. You can do this. I can be in Bible study. I can do that. We took communion this morning. We purposely were going to have it next week. And I changed my mind. I said, because we had the conference, we usually have it the first Sunday of the month. And I thought, no, we're going to have communion this morning because it's part of the four-step program that's laid out in the early church. Because we want to keep the main thing the main thing. Remembering it's not about, they're doing this for themselves. They're hyping themselves up for self. We take communion because we want to keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is about Jesus and not me. Amen? 
And that's where the church is getting off. When you try to satisfy or try to um, become disencouraged from what, whatever you're going through, my friends, there's only two things that are going to do that. And that is this pattern that's laid out here. And it, it will get you through your 40 years. And as long as we don't um, uh, get sucked into uh, these other programs that have gotten away from these basic uh, fundamental uh, teachings of Bible study, prayer, fellowship, and communion. And I, I always like to say, I can do that. I can do it for the long haul, and I can be satisfied with it. Matter of fact, it's the only thing that satisfies the other thing that I would point out here is this is Sunday morning. So we're having a Bible study. We're getting fed. We're eating our manna. Amen? But it's not going to be any good tomorrow morning. You've got to get up and do it all over again. Didn't Paul say, I die daily? Yeah, got to do it. Die daily. And you know what I think about dying daily? The thing I don't like about it? It's so daily. But that's what you have to do. And um, we, we have no problems feeding ourselves three squares a day. Um, but again, to get back to your own personal devotional life, when it isn't here or Wednesdays or men's prayer or women's prayer. That's why the only thing that we have on our sign out there that we advertise is uh, when our services are and when our prayer meetings are. We don't have anything else to put on there because that's what, happens here. And we have no desire to um, um, do what you just saw on the screen. <laughs> so as we get into winding this up this morning, um, I want you to know that you will go through times of discouragement, but I want you to know that's normal. If it can happen to King David, I'm quoting Psalm 42.5, David gives himself a good talking to. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Sounds like he's discouraged. You know why? He is. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted in me? And then he says, hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, I'll pray. And in doing so, he knows that he's going to be restored. The answer for dealing with discouragement is number one, the word of God. Number two, prayer. Number three, fellowship. And number four, communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The thing that bothers me a little bit is we always read First uh, Corinthians 11. And sometimes we can just take it for granted because we know it so well. But communion is what the Lord is saying. Remember, it's all about the cross. It's what I did for you. And when you have that understanding, there's a gratitude that comes in. And he says, I don't want you to forget it. So communion is the main thing. Remember, it's all about the cross, the blood that was shed on the cross. And... Um, if we maintain this for the long haul, you guys will finish well. I'll finish well. 
you'll have your days. And when you have your days, there's ways that you can, as we studied this morning, how to deal with discouragement. Well, how is that for a Mother's Day message? (laughs) A lot of churches, that's what's going on right now. They're just talking about mom, and that's fine. There's a place for that. But um, we will, on Wednesday night, pick up on verse, as we look at Acts. I'll read verse 11 one more time. When Paul was discouraged, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul. I still have plans for you. I'll leave you with the same words. The word of God will speak to you, and he'll tell you, be of good courage, and cast your cares upon him, these trials, because he cares for you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, as we make our way through the book of Acts, we see that even the apostle Paul got discouraged And in speaking to him, um, he was encouraged. Lord, we thank you that you've given us the word of God, the living manna, that we can talk directly to you. And Lord, you can speak directly to us. Thank you that you've given us the privilege to acknowledge you in all of our ways. In other words, our prayer life. And through the study of your word and prayer and fellowship and remembering that it's all about you and the cross, uh, we have this blessed hope that's set before us. So Lord, we commit the rest of the day to you. Again, I wanna pray for Paul and Lori as uh, this will be their last Sunday here. Pray that you keep them safe as they travel and, and just go before them. And for the moms, again, today we pray that you'd have a, a special day for them also. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.